You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Peace be with you. Let me pray for us before we jump in. Father, thank you for your grace over us, God, and thank you for uh, the grace that it is to to gather with your people, uh, worshiping you and reminding each other um, of your gospel. We ask you this morning, God, that through your word and by the power of your spirit, um, you would help us, Lord, to believe in the grace of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and the work of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. And so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Carlos, and I'm a church planting resident with Sojourn Heights, I'm looking to, by God's grace, plant in the future a new local expression of God's church in East End, Houston. If you have any questions about that, we'd love to talk to you after the gathering. Uh, but I want to jump right into it because we have a lot to cover. Um, I'm grateful to be here with you guys. Um, I love uh, this local church, and so it's always a joy for me to be here worshiping with you guys. We've been going through a series in the book of Job, right, and in all of our sojourn churches. And, and the question we've been asking is, is God just in a world of injustice? Is God just in a world of injustice? And this morning we'll survey some of the most important, maybe even the most important chapters of Job, which is where we find God's response to Job. So let's jump right in. Are you, are you someone who uh, tends to be critical of, of, a, of a president? Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe Obama, maybe Bush, maybe Clinton, whoever it is. I'm not here to, to, to show my political colors, but um, I, I want to ask you, um, have you maybe been highly critical of a president in the past or in the present? And you've said a lot of things maybe through social media, maybe through friends, and, and, and continuing to criticize um, a president while he's in office. Well, imagine if this president, uh, while he was in office, called you to your cell phone. And he called you and you answered and he said, this is the president of the United States of America. And, and I've heard that you've had some things to say about how I rule this country. I want to meet with you in a trial-like meeting and I want to talk about everything that you said. How would that make you feel? I, I bet you'd feel anxious, scared, full of fear, while at the same time, though, I'm sure, because I'm sure all of us have done this at some point, we've said something like, man, if I had him in in front of me, I would say this to his face, right? What you most, like, longed for, right, is also what you most feared. And now you, you have this opportunity to do what you've told others that you would do behind his back, and now you have this opportunity to do it in front of him. Right? In, in a very similar way, though this is an in, in, imperfect example, this is what, where Job finds himself in chapter 38. God's response was what he most longed for, yet what he most feared. So as we survey really these, these four chapters, 38 through 41, and skim over them this morning, and we see God's response to Job in them, they will teach us this, that God calls us to trust in him in our suffering, even when we don't have the answers to why we're suffering. 
God calls us to trust in him in our suffering, even when we don't have the answers to why we're suffering. So let's take a look at this chapter, chapter 38. Up to this point, to give you kind of some, some context, up to this point, we've heard about who Job is, right? We've heard that Job was a very rich, rich man, a very wealthy man, a very successful man with a, a large family, which also symbolized blessing over him. And the Lord allowed suffering to enter his life, and Job lost it all. He lost his wealth, he lost his family, and he lost his health. He lost the, the prestige or the respect of society. He was at the bottom of the chain, right? When once he was respected, when he walked in to places, people stood up for him in honor. Now he's a laughing stock. And up to this point, we've heard Job express in pain in the midst of his suffering, uh, expressing his frustrations, expressing, asking why, defending his innocence. Out of, his, out of his ignorance, right? And we've heard three of his friends, these infamous friends, try to give a, give a response to Job's questions. We see also, we've seen Elihu, Elihu give a response as well. And if, and if all of their responses were, were, if we can picture a dartboard, and their responses were the darts, we, we see, we, we've seen that, that the three friends were way off mark. They, they missed the entire dartboard, dartboard all together. Elihu got a little closer, but now this morning we, we see that the Lord steps up to the line and with his darts hits the bullseye of, of the perfect answer that Job needs to hear. And so in, in verse 1 of chapter 38, uh, it begins by telling us that the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. And I want, I want to point out some key things here. I believe it's, it's important for us to, to understand this before we go any further. Unlike us standing in front of the president, um, who is, is not, uh, we are not related to him, we're not part of his family, um, the Lord steps in and, and out of a whirlwind speaks to Job. And out of a whirlwind, this is pointing to what is called a theophany, which is an appearance or a manifestation of God in the physical world whether it be in, the, in, in human form or whether it be in some physical presence like a storm. And so here we find the Lord appearing out of the whirlwind. Why is this important? It's significant because it is a covenantal gesture. God is revealing himself in the context of covenant. So as, as, as Elihu went on, kind of going in on Job, right? The Lord, when he responds, doesn't even address Elihu, and goes straight to addressing Job in the context of a loving covenant relationship. Much to the surprise of Elihu and his three friends, who thought that if the Lord responded to Job, he should have responded in judgment, in condemnation. But the Lord, no, he shows up in the context of a loving and covenant relationship. And we also find that Yahweh here is used for the Lord all capital letters, L-O-R-D, for that stands for Yahweh. And the last time that was used was in the first couple of chapters of Job, where God defines his relationship with Job. So we see God showing up after Job has questioned God. 
And God shows up affirming that he still has that same covenant relationship that he did, that he had with him in the beginning of the book. So we see that this is how the Lord begins his rebuke, essentially, of Job in the context of relationship. And, and he asks Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So the Lord wants to, wants to have Job understand who Job is and who God is. And he'll continue to go on asking him so many questions to prove to Job how limited his knowledge is of God's rulings and God's dealings in the world and in the universe. But as we stated, God is speaking, though, though, though God comes at, at Job pretty, pretty hard, he's doing it in the context of this relationship as a father who needs to correct his child. He approaches Job, and he corrects him to restore him. He doesn't correct him to condemn him. So we will skim through kind of chapter 38. We see that God... God asks him, essentially, if he was there, if Job was there when he created the world. And, and God kind of gives this imagery of him being an architect, a builder. So were you there when I laid the foundations of the world? To prove to him, you know nothing of the creation of the world. You yourself are a creation. How can the pot, essentially, tell the potter how to make the pot? That's what he's trying to get at. And he Excuse me. And maybe, maybe after hearing that, so if we think about the fact that Job was in intense suffering and God points to the fact that he's the creator of all things, how does that address the, the, the issue of suffering and of evil? Well, he continues in verses 8 through 11, and he uses this, this imagery of the sea. Right? And, and in the Bible, the sea is, is a symbol of disorder, of chaos, of danger, of evil, and, and ultimately even of death. So Job understood this imagery and knew what God was talking about. A sea is seen like a baby. So the, 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 this verse here, it says that, that in verse 8, Oh, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? So the Lord is, is, is giving this imagery of the sea being a baby, a bursting out of the womb. And, and, and by implication there, it's the that the Lord essentially is the parent. And so he, 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 now hear, hear me on this. Evil, if, if, we, if we can say with reverence and with care, uh, evil essentially, in a sense, is God's baby, is essentially what he's saying. It, it, it doesn't mean that evil uh, it doesn't mean that God is the author of evil. It doesn't mean that God sins, but it means that just like an infant that is unruly is really no match for his parent, in the same way, the sea, he compares it to an unruly infant. He says he's, he's, this, this unruly infant is no comparison to the creator. And he, he holds and he controls the boundaries of how far evil in our world will go, just like he tells the sea. You will come this far. He tells evil, you will come only this far. Evil in our world is 
is all over, it's rampant, but it's not as bad as it could be. God, in his common grace, right, holds back, holds back in the hearts of wicked men uh, the potential to become another Hitler, another Stalin. And this is God's common grace that says, you will come this far, evil. And he's telling Job, I, essentially, I am in control of the chaos and the evil in our world. And what does that do for Job? How does that affect Job? And by extension, how does that affect us if God is sovereign even over chaos and evil? It means that God is sovereign over our suffering. It means that God is sovereign over the chaos that you may be experiencing this morning in your life or that you may experience in the future. While to us, suffering seems chaotic, and we may feel, as David said in the Psalms, that waves crash over him to God, it is like a baby that is unruly. He is in complete control, and it doesn't catch him by surprise. And he is, we are in the care of this loving Father. This means that he knows whether or not some of us here will get terminal illnesses. He knows whether those in here that are married, whether one of our spouses will die at a young age. And this is intense things that we talk about, and I say it with, with, with fear, knowing that these things can come upon us at any time. But if we, if we know that God is in complete control over the raging seas of suffering, and of chaos, and that he is a good father, a good God that speaks to us and comes to us in the context of a covenant relationship, then we know, and we know that we can trust him in that suffering. So this brings up another question. Will, will, will evil exist forever? And we know that it won't. We see in verses 12 through 15, God laying out a structure of creation and even in the structure of creation and God, how God has ordered the sun, the morning, and the dawn, it, it shows us and it points to the fact that one day evil will be destroyed. And the imagery changes here again, and we see God as a commander or a general of the morning and the dawn. He says, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it. And so here now Job, as, as he listens to God uh, question him, it has in mind that the same way that creation works, the same way that morning rises, that the sun rises in the morning and exposes the darkness, in the same way God every morning exposes evil, and that one day he'll make all things new and expose evil once and for good, and get rid of it. And he gives this, this imagery of, of the dawn, personification, right? Of, of the dawn taking the skirts of the earth and shaking them and doing away with the wicked. As if we were to grab a tablecloth and shake it of all its crumbs. And he says, in the same way I command the dawn to expose wickedness, to eradicate it from the earth. One day I'll do it for good. So tell me, Job, can you do this? Telling them evil is temporary, though it is 
in this world. It is temporary. So God sets before Job this, this deep portrayal, right, of the structure of the universe. It's deeply and ultimately good, but there is still evil in this world, necessary evil even, that reveals, but it reveals here that this evil will one day be done away with. While Job's friends painted a black and white, two-dimensional picture of how God works in suffering or why suffering happens, God paints a three-dimensional, colorful picture of creation to show Job there's so many things that you don't know about creation. There's so many things you don't know about how I run this world. I have all knowledge. And you have limited knowledge, Job. So we, we ask then after this, um, can, can God be trusted in the midst of our suffering? Right? How can we be sure that evil is part of God's creation and is under God's uh, ultimate control? And we see in verses 16 through 18, let me read it for us. It says, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. Job is, is, is essentially, I mean, God is essentially telling Job, Job, have you, have you dived into the depths of the sea, into the recesses of the deep? Those parts of the sea that no man has seen, even the parts that are so low that it's the entrance into the gates of death. Have you seen those? Do you know them? Tell me if you know. Even to this day, there are parts of the sea, major parts of the sea that man has not explored yet. And Job, God is reminding Job, there's so much in the dark parts of this earth that you have no idea about. The gates of death and the gates of deep darkness really stand for death itself. God is asking Job if he's traveled so far into these depths to see the realm of the dead. Have you, have you seen this, Job? And God asked Job if he's been there where really the, the worst place of creation, the deepest and darkest parts of creation. And of course, we know that the answer is no. And we know God is asking these questions already knowing the answer. Job knows the answer. God does know these deep, dark parts of creation. He knows them well. He is the creator of the sea, and he is the giver and the taker of life. None of this, even the darkest, deepest parts of creation, are outside of his knowledge and control. And because of this, Job and us, by extension, can be sure that there's no dark corner in this universe. There's no, no kind of maverick molecule somewhere floating in the universe that is outside of God's control. God is sovereign over all these things. And God knows very well what the gates of hell look like, right? He himself has, has entered into the recesses of the deepest and the darkest. And I, and I hope this sounds familiar to us, these 
these verses 16 and 17 because though Job had partial revelation, we have full disclosure of Scripture. And, and we, can, we can be reminded that later on in the course of history, God himself in the form of a man would go into the deepest parts, the deepest parts of creation, the darkest place known to man. We'll get to that later on. So God ends his first long line of questioning by, by asking Job if, if he will find fault with the Almighty, right? And demands a response from Job. And Job answers. But, but Job answers humbled, but not humbled enough. He feels the impact of God's speech. Right? He's humbled to know and realize and be reminded, I don't, I don't know the answer to any of these questions God just asked me. I, you're right, God. I, I spoke out of turn. I put my mouth, I put my hand over my mouth. I, I will speak no further. But he had yet to retract or repent right, of what he had said previously. So God continues. God continues. And he, and he really just gets right to the point after this. In chapter 40, God gets right to the point and says, hey, Job, let me, let me ask you straight up. Are you calling me unjust? Because really, if you've been defending yourself so much at the expense of defending my justice, really, in your ignorance, really what you're doing is indirectly, you're, you're trying to call me unjust. Is that what you're trying to do, Job? Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? That's what the Lord asked Job in verse 8 of chapter 40. And he follows that immediately by, by, saying, have you, by asking, have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? So God essentially is asking Job, hey, Job, are you calling me unjust? Do, do you not understand that I have all power? So how does God's justice and God's power, how does God's power defend his justice? Is, is God saying that he is right because he has all might? Off top, that, that may sound disturbing. It may not sound right. It's, it's as if when I grew up, I don't know about you guys, but Sometimes my mom would tell me no just because. She said, because I'm your mother, that's why. But, but why? I, I really do think, mom, you may be in the wrong here. Well, no, I'm not wrong because I'm your mother. And I have power over you. That's why I'm right. It, it left me kind of frustrated. I'm like, man, I know, I know that you're not always right because you're not perfect. Right? But this is not what God is doing here. God is not just telling Job, hey, just shut up. I have all power, so I'm right. I'm just because I have all power. Because then he, co he continues, and he asks Job this. I'll read it. He says, Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and, sp and splendor. And, and check this out here. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand
can save you. So, and this is, this is, this is deep. He, he's telling Job, hey, are you calling me unjust? Don't you know I have all power? Wait a minute. Wait. You clothe yourself with glory and splendor and majesty for what? For a purpose, to abase the wicked, to rid the world of wickedness. And by, by implication, we know to exalt the humble. The Lord, right, he, he stands afar from the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, we know. So God is telling him, can you, can you do away with the wicked? Can you bring them low? Can you hide them all in the dust together, annihilate them? Can you do that? Because if you can, then I'll, t- I'll, st- I'll step aside and I'll let you run things. Then I'll acknowledge that you can also save yourself. So he's pointing to the fact that this might that he has, this almighty power that God has is for a purpose. It's not just for God kind of to be selfish or or, or capricious, right? To kind of just do whatever he wants because he feels like it. No, his might has a purpose. It's to abase the wicked. And God here is asking, Job, can you do that? Because that's what I do. That's what I'm doing. And of course, Of course, we know Job's answer is no, he can't do that. He can't run the world like God can. He doesn't know the first thing about running the world. My favorite actor, I'm going to say this, maybe some of you judge me, is Jim Carrey. Um, And so it reminded me of Bruce Almighty, right? It's corny and it's kind of, but really, like, if, we, if, if God allowed us to run the world, man, we'd, we'd send it straight to hell. We can't, we can't run the world. We're a creation. How can, as I said earlier, the potter be told by the pot how to make the pot? That is reminding Job who he is and reminding Job who he is. He's a creation, and he is indeed God's child but he cannot control or run things the way God does. And he finishes off this chapter 41 by talking about the behemoth and the Leviathan, which are creatures. Um, I won't get into details about this, but essentially they symbolize something. The, the behemoth symbolizes, essentially symbolizes death, and the Leviathan would symbolize chaos or evil or even our enemy. Some people believe these are mythological creatures. Some people believe they were dinosaurs. I believe they were dinosaurs, but that's a different story. God is in complete control, essentially, is what God is telling Job. These two animals, whether real or symbolic, do represent chaos, the wild earth, the, play, the parts of the earth that remain untamed, parts of the earth that man dares not step into. And he says, Job, these, these creatures, the way I've described them, uh, they, they put fear and trembling in you. But to me, they're like pets. This is essentially what he's telling him. And he's telling him, I control this chaotic, untamed world that you don't see and comprehend. So trust me in knowing that I oversee and control in some mysterious way, the chaos and the suffering and the evil happening to you and happening in this world. 
God ends his response to Job. And Job is left wanting answers to his questions, but God does not give him answers to the questions that he posed. Instead, Job gets silence to these questions. And it's as if when you finally meet up with the president, he shows you his schedule and he shows you the details of his schedule and everything he has to do day by day, week by week, month by month. And then proceeds to, to, to question you, are, are you. Do you think you could handle this day by day and have the pressure of an entire nation criticizing you? Do you think you could do that? Because if you could, go ahead, take over, I'll go home. Right? This is an imperfect example, but it's a similar feeling that Job felt. But we know that this is, this is God who is good and perfect who's speaking. This is not the president. This is the God who cares for Job deeply. This is the God who did, does not allow anything to happen to you or to me without it first being filtered through his love. So we know we can trust when God says, trust me. This is essentially the answer to, to, to Job's questions. God answers Job's questions with an invitation to trust him. Trust me, Job. I created all things. I see to it that the bird gets his food. I keep my eye on the sparrow. I do all of these things. And also chaos and evil. Just like I tell the sea, you will come this far. I tell evil and chaos and suffering, you will come this far. But remember, Job, that I am Yahweh. I am the Redeemer. And I speak to you in the context of a covenant relationship. I love you. Trust me. Is what God is trying to get across to Job. Will you trust me? Some of us may, may struggle with that. Some of us may, may, may ask, why can't God answer my questions to why we're struggling with infertility? Or why, why can't God answer my question as to why I have this illness? And, or or maybe, maybe today you're sitting here and you, you, you feel like life is going exactly how you want it. But you know that if you are a believer in the room, you know that suffering is part of the Christian life. So you may look into the future and sometimes maybe be plagued with anxiety of what's to come. And, and maybe struggle to believe that you would trust God in the midst of, of that suffering. Because maybe God just encouraging you to trust is not enough. And maybe if that's where we stand today, maybe, maybe where Job, on his worst day, when he forgets God's sovereignty and God's goodness, or maybe we're one of Job's friends who believe that the world works in, in a kind of a works-based righteousness kind of way, that if I sin, then I receive suffering and punishment on this earth, and even if I am a child of God, if I sin, then God will punish me, and I'm suffering because God is punishing me. And if I do right, then God won't bring suffering my way. 
And so when suffering comes, the self-righteous parts of my heart, I know, rise up and say, why, God? I serve you. And maybe God is calling our hearts back to trust and to say, hey, this is, this is a, a good God. This is a sovereign God. You can trust in even when, even when you don't have all the answers. And if it is enough, if Christ is enough in what he's done, we can, we can trust in him in our suffering. We can trust in him in our suffering because as I stated earlier out of verses 16 and 17 in chapter 38, the Lord questioning Job if he's seen the deepest, darkest parts of creation. We know that later on, God himself would take upon himself human flesh and experience the deepest, darkest place in all of human history, which was on the cross. Uh, on the cross, Christ entered into the darkness that was God's wrath. On the cross, God, the, the Father, punished Christ, his Son, and Jesus willfully submitted himself to that. But not only that, he entered into these gates of death, and he, he, he made his bed in the grave, and he rose from the grave on the third day. So he himself has tasted death. So we know if, if Jesus has gone and, and, and kind of went head first into all, like, all of God's wrath on behalf of his people, if this concentrated wrath and judgment for all the evil that his people have committed and would and will commit was placed on Christ, then we know that in our deepest, darkest suffering, we can trust that Christ has already gone before us and experience the kind of suffering we will never be subjected to now if we believe in him. We will never be separated from the Father. And as I stated earlier, this, this suffering now is filtered through the filter of God's love for his people. And we can live out Philippians 1, 27 through 30. I'll read it for you. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. A life worthy of Jesus embraces, embraces suffering. A life worthy of, of Jesus embraces suffering. And what suffering does to us, brothers and sisters, even this morning, what it, what it does, it cuts through what truly is important and what truly isn't important. And it also gives us a, a perspective on what really is suffering. Like our AC going out yesterday, that's not suffering. That's an inconvenience, right? Going through a season of 
of singleness, as, as hard as that may be. Um, maybe God is just trying to, 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 to help us trust in Him in that season, or, or whatever it may be. I there's so many things that we tag up in our, our culture as suffering, when in reality they're just inconveniences. And when we go through intense suffering, God cuts through, cuts through what is really important and what really isn't. But we can trust him because Jesus endured this, this darkest form of suffering, right? And in our suffering, we now ask this question, who is God and can he be trusted in what he's doing in this world? Instead of focusing so much on receiving an answer, receiving a why to our suffering. God calls us to trust Him in our suffering, even when we don't have all the answers to why we're suffering. Let's pray. Father, help us. God, increase our faith. Remind us, Lord, of your goodness towards us in Christ ultimately and that you are in control of all things and that you are worthy of trust and that Christ is enough and the cross is enough even when we don't have all the answers to our pain and our suffering. Help us to trust in Christ this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.